The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Hey, so welcome to the Inn. Uh, my name is Bill Strunk. And I am the director of the Inn over at Washington State University. Uh, so, unfortunately, I don't see any of my Cougar friends here tonight, and so I'm bummed. But uh, if you're not from Washington, you maybe don't know that there's that big rivalry going on between the Huskies and the Cougs. I don't know. You're missing out on something if you don't know about that rivalry. Anyway, I uh, was an intern here at the Inn in Seattle four years ago, and then at the end of my intern year, had this opportunity to poop head across the state and get to start up the, the inn at Washington State. And so we just finished our fourth year, and actually I'm a lot closer to going back for the fifth than I am to finishing the fourth. Our summer is almost over. That's kind of a bummer thing. Another month and I'm headed back to Pullman uh, for another year. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited to get to be here over the summer, though. It's a great uh, joy for me to get to be around here in Seattle, enjoying the fun things to do here, uh, hanging out with the super cool staff. And so it's been great fun for me to get to be around here. Uh, originally, I am from Idaho, southern Idaho, small town. Yeah, rock on. Yeah, we got some more Idahoans. You're a northern Idaho boy. I'm a southern Idaho boy. It's okay. Um, went to a very sm- I went to a very small high school, very small college, uh, the College of Idaho, Yotes. Uh, if you are an in Seattle person during the regular year, get used to that. One of the interns for next year. His name is Chris Tietzort. He is also a College of Idaho alum. And so even though we only have 800 students at our school, we are kind of, we're making our way into UMIN. We're going to take it over someday. No big deal. Look out for the Yotes. Go Yotes. Um, so anyway, that uh, through ministry there, that's what led me to the inn here in Seattle. I wanted to do an internship. I was a biology major in school, but uh, kind of decided, oh, I, I don't really like biology. I don't want to go to medical school anymore because... Labs suck. And so that God changed my mind a little bit of what I was up to, uh, kind of twisted me a little bit into just this, uh, this path of ministry. And this is something that I love to get to do is uh, be a college minister, sharing Christ with college students at a time in your life when uh, there's a lot of questions going on about who are you going to be um, when you grow up. And that's a lot more of a legit question when you're a college student than when you know, you're 12. And so it's a fun thing for me to get to do. And so I absolutely love my job. Uh, even though some would say that being in Pullman sucks. That like maybe it's like the, the roaming in the desert, you know. We're looking at Exodus this summer. And some of you might equate the, the wilderness that the, the Israelites were walking around in for 40 years. You might equate that to Pullman. Um, don't knock it till you try it. Uh, it's a really it's a place that grows on you. And I really, I really enjoy Pullman. So I'm excited to get back over there. Uh, to start up the next year. But anyway, like I said, we are taking a look at Exodus. We're taking a look at God's desire to build a relationship with his people. Uh, and that's uh, what we see through the story of Exodus, uh, that God is looking to, to, to build a relationship with his people, not just to give a lot of rules. One of the things that pops up in Exodus is the, is the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so, like, uh, Voice started us off a couple weeks ago talking about how uh, it's important that, that we have a relationship with God before he gives these rules because uh, rules without relationship equals rebellion, and that's a bad thing. And so God is establishing a relationship with, with his people 
And then from out of that relationship comes these, the, the Ten Commandments, this, hey, here's a good way for you guys to be living. Uh, last week, Emily uh, helped us take a look at, at Moses, uh, our main character in Exodus, and his experience with God in the talking to God through a burning bush. Probably hasn't happened to many of you. Uh, kind of an exciting, different deal. But, but uh, Emily shared with us that, that God is, is, has, a, has a desire to, to know us, to see us, to hear us, that he loves his people, and that includes us. And uh, that's what he is up to doing, seeing, hearing, knowing his people. Uh, this week, we're going to move a little bit long, further along in the story. We're up to the, the plagues of Egypt. Uh, maybe you're a little familiar with those. Uh, if you watched the Ten Commandments growing up, Charlton Heston, uh, I don't know. I've never, have you any of you guys ever seen that really old movie, Ten Commandments? There's a couple. I was talking to a guy today about it, and he's like, oh, you're talking about the plagues. I'm so excited. I love the Ten Commandments movie. I'm like, oh, I've actually never seen it. But he watches it with his family like every year. I guess it's on TV at some point every year. Uh, so maybe you're familiar with that story from there. Maybe you're familiar with it from uh, from Sunday school classes. You know, they, they like to talk about the plagues in Sunday school. Or maybe the, the Prince of Egypt cartoon that came out recently. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're a little familiar with it. Uh, but we're going to kind of take a look at uh, how God manifested his power uh, through these plagues and how both the Israelite people and Pharaoh and the Egyptians responded to this display of, of God's power. And so that from this one set of events, uh, we got two very different responses. We had some hard hearts and we had some soft hearts. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at. And so before we get into that, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just thank you for this chance for us to be together here tonight. Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we take a look at it tonight, uh, you would give us all soft hearts uh, to know and understand you all the more. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to know you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I think that it can be really funny. It's kind of weird how uh, you can have one event and people can come at it and they're both experiencing it together, but they have completely different reactions to this. A couple years ago, I was hanging out in Costco, uh, one of my absolute favorite places on earth, uh, third behind Petco Park, the home of the San Diego Padres. Go Padres. Uh, and number two would be any sweet beach somewhere. So maybe Ocean Shores. I don't know. But anyway, Costco is number three on my favorite place in the entire world. Uh, $1.50 dogs and a drink. Can't be beat. So anyway, I was hanging out in Costco and walking around with my friend Claire. And we stumbled across a table that had seven jeans at a screaming deal. And so they were like $85. And I don't know if you're, if you're, un, if you're unfamiliar with seven jeans. Um, they're a whole heck of a lot more expensive than $85 at most stores. And so Claire notices this and she's like, wow, that's pretty crazy cool. So she walks up and is checking out this, this table of seven jeans. And there's another woman that's there looking at them too. And, and this woman's like, oh my gosh, can you believe these prices? And Claire's like, oh, I know. They're, it's so cheap. I can't believe it. And the woman's like, 
I can't believe anyone's paying $85 for a pair of jeans. And she like storms off. She's like really upset. And so this woman was like, oh my gosh, $85 for a pair of jeans. That's her gosh darn ridiculous. And then Claire's over here. Oh my gosh, $85 for a pair of seven jeans. That's her gosh darn ridiculous. But they looked at it. They were completely different responses to it. This woman was upset. She's like, that's so expensive. And Claire's like, oh my gosh, that's so cheap. And so same same experience, but whoa, totally different responses to that. And so that's what we've got going on uh, in our story with the, with the Egyptians and the Israelites tonight. Uh, that uh, we've got, just kind of pick up the story from where, where Emily left us last week. God tells uh, Moses through the burning bush, hey, uh, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. That's where you came from. Uh, you grew up there. You killed a guy. It's safe for you to go back now, though. And so I want you to go and I want you to take my people out of captivity because Moses was an Israelite. So he goes from Midian back to Egypt. It's kind of like uh, Jack and the Oceanic Six having to go back to the island in the best show on television. Uh, kind of like that. Uh, get excited for season six. Uh, so anyway, we've got Moses returning to, to Israel and... Uh, as he shows up, uh, he finds his brother Aaron, and they're going to go together to Pharaoh and say, hey, uh, let my people go. Um, so Moses and Aaron, they tell the Israelite people, they're like, sweet, that sounds great. We're ready to get out of here. Uh, then Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and to, to give them this message from God. And this is, this is what happens. This is Exodus 5, 1 through 2. Um, This is right after that they've told the people, and the people were excited, and they they were worshiping. Uh, It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And Pharaoh goes on and says, You know what, really, these Israelites, they're lazy, and so what we're going to do is we're going to make them work harder. We're not going to make we're not going to give them any straw for the bricks that they're making. And I don't know a whole lot about making bricks, but I guess it's a whole lot more difficult if you're making bricks without straw. And so the Israelites find out about this and they are really upset. Uh, they are mad at Moses and Aaron. Uh, they're upset with God uh, that this is now a situation where they got really excited that they were going to be taken out of captivity. To all of a sudden things went from bad to even worse. They were thinking that they were all freed, but all of a sudden it just went from bad to worse. So we've got the Israelites, they're really upset. They're, they're not so stoked with God, with Aaron and with Moses. And then we've got Pharaoh, who his response to this whole situation is, who the heck is the Lord? I have no clue who this guy is, saying that he's going to take his, these people out of here. I'm the God around here. Isn't the Egyptian, the way their religious structure, Pharaohs were... They were gods. And so Pharaoh's like, what the heck? I don't even know what's going on here. And so that's where we start off with the plagues. We've got, we've got Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They have no clue who the Lord is. And then we've, got, uh, then we've got the Israelites who are just upset. They're working hard and they're not digging that. And so in that is where we start with, with the plagues themselves. And so we're just going to... This is the chapter... Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is a sweet graphic of the plagues. Um, this one might be something that you would find in Sunday school. Uh, they're kind of all there. Uh, the, it took me a while to notice it down in the lower right-hand corner, that just preview. 
Uh, the ninth plague is darkness. See, there's a little black strip there. Oh, that's darkness, not just like a mess up in the thing. Uh, so we've got the water to blood. We've got the frogs. We've got the gnats. Then the next one, if you're familiar with your plagues, that one doesn't exactly belong. We see like maybe a wolf and a lion. Uh, it's supposed to be flies. Uh, so I don't know what's going on there. I guess it just it looks too similar to the gnats up there. So the artist just decided to draw something else. Uh, then we've got the livestock who, who, who died. Then we've got boils and like he's not so stoked about the boils on his stomach. Uh, then we've got some hail, then we've got some locusts, and then squeezed in there we've got the darkness, and then we've got the Passover, the killing of the, uh, of the firstborn. And so that's just kind of wrap your head around it a little bit. Uh, we're going to just kind of blow through this because it's, it's a lot of chapters. The, it, the, uh, the first nine plagues go from Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 11, then chapter 12 is the preparation for the Passover and the actual... Um, sending out of the angel of death and the killing of all the firstborn. Uh, so we're just going to kind of breeze through this real quick. Um, and so this is, this is what we got going. <clears throat> we got Moses and Aaron. They show up to Pharaoh and they, they say, hey, uh, let my people go or we're going to turn all the water of this nation into blood. And so uh, Pharaoh's like, huh, no way, Jose. They do it. Uh, they, all the water turns to blood. And then Pharaoh's magicians, they're able to replicate this as well. And so, uh, even though they saw this, whoa, crazy thing, the magicians, they were able to do it too. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he's like, see you guys later. The second plague comes up. you got the plague of the frogs. And so frogs are all over everywhere. Uh, it's the same type of deal uh, where the magicians were, were able to replicate that. Uh, but when Pharaoh got tired of all these having these frogs around, uh, the magicians weren't able to remove the, flo- the frogs. And so he asks Moses to pray to God. Uh, to remove the, the, all these frogs. And, uh, as that, and, and, and Moses says, if you do this, I'll, I'll let your people go and you guys can go worship. Uh, you can, you can do that. Um, Moses is like, okay, I'm gonna pray tomorrow. And just so you know is that it's me that's praying and it's gonna happen tomorrow. And then we're gonna go. And, and Pharaoh's like, great, just get these frogs out of here. Moses prays, the frogs all die. Pharaoh's heart hardens again. Oh, dang it. So the next plague comes along. This is the, the plague of the gnats. Uh, and so uh, they throw down the, the rod and they hit the, the dust. And all the dust in all of Egypt turns into gnats. And so that's a lot of, that's a lot of gnats. Uh, they're all over the place. Uh, this is one uh, right here that where the magicians are not able to replicate this. It says that, that they, tell, they tell Pharaoh that, that this is the finger of God. This is, this is something different. This is beyond us. Uh, and so uh, they, they tell Pharaoh that, but, but Pharaoh, his heart is hard, and he doesn't care. He doesn't listen. Uh, and then we hit the, the rest of the plagues. We're just going to kind of... Because they're all a lot more similar. At this point, uh, we, get the, we get the flies. We get whoo, swarms of flies that go all over. Uh, you've got death to the livestock. so like all their livestock pass away. And then you've got uh, the boils, these sores that they get all over their body. Uh, the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, aren't even able to come in front of him and talk with him at this point. They're like bedridden or whatever. And so they're, they're out of the picture at this point. Uh, then we've got the, the hail that comes and tears down everything. Uh, then the locusts come and they take down anything else that, that hasn't already been taken down by the hail. Uh, then there's this darkness that's three days 
uh, of darkness that you can feel. That like people are like swimming in darkness. So it's like this really weird thing. Uh, and then after that is the, the death of all the firstborns, animals, people, everything. Uh, but the interesting thing on all these plagues, from the, from the flies on, God makes a point and he says, this, these plagues are going to happen, but they're not going to happen in the land of Goshen. And Goshen was where the Israelites lived there in Egypt. And so all these things, from, uh, from the flies through everything else, the, the flies aren't going to affect the Israelites. The Israelites' livestock are not going to be killed. I'm going to set a distinction, is what God says. And so he does it, so all these plagues go through. Uh, within all, a lot of these, Pharaoh makes some concessions. Okay, hey, I'll let you guys, I'll let you go, but only the men. Or I'll let you guys go, but only a little ways away. Or couple, all these concessions of like, I will let you go, just get rid of these plagues. In all of these cases, Pharaoh goes back on his word. His heart is, his heart is hardened, and he goes back on his word. Uh, and so ten times this happens. That Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Whoa. And he doesn't want the people to leave. And so uh, it takes the killing of the firstborn for, for him to be able to finally just say, go, get the heck up out of here. And then even once they're gone, he says, hey, actually, I changed my mind. I'm going to chase after you. Uh, and so he never quite got it. And so this is what happens. That's the, that's the, the story of the plagues, whoosh, crammed down Sparks Note style. Uh, and so what is it that we, that we see uh, in, this, in this story of the plagues uh, coming at it with a lens of, we've got this God who, who wants to be in relationship with us. Okay. Uh, so the first thing that, that, that I know in there is that, um, that God is, is, is sovereign. Sovereign is this big old word that means that, that, God, that God is large and in charge. And that he gets to kind of uh, do what it is that he's going to do. And that if he's going to use plagues to get through to, to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, uh, that's what he's going to do. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of says it well, uh, that, uh, that God is able to whisper through our pleasures, that he speaks to us through our conscience, and that he, that he shouts in our pain. That, that pain is, is the megaphone that God uses to rouse uh, a sleepy people. And so that's obviously what we've got going. God has chosen that he's going to use these painful plagues uh, to get the attention of uh, the Israelites and the Egyptians. Uh, in Isaiah, it talks about how, you know what, God's thoughts and his ways are higher than ours, and that we're not uh, full-on going to understand what God's up to. And I think that that's something that, that in this we need to really hold on to, that as we look at this story, we can be like, oh, man, what's God doing? This sounds really mean. Uh, but as we look at the entirety of who God is and what he's up to, we have to trust that, that God's up to something bigger. That throughout all of what God is up to, he's up to uh, redemption. He's up to freeing the captives. He's up to bringing justice to those who've had injustice thrown upon them. And so we have to trust that in all of this, God is sovereign. That God knows what he's doing, that he's in charge with all of this. And so out of this, like I said, God wants to be in a relationship with us. And that's what we, I think that that's one of the central things within uh, the story of the plagues. Uh, that, that God desires to be seen and he desires to be known. Last week, Emily talked about how, how um, that God sees us and he knows us. But there's that reciprocal as well, that God wants us to know him as well. That this is a two-way relationship. He sees us, he hears us, but he also wants us to see him and hear him and know him. 
And so I think that this comes out most clear. We're going to look at, uh, this is chapter 9, verses 13 through 16 here of Exodus. I think that this really sums up well um, what God's up to uh, in, in the whole plagues. This is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But there it is. The main thing we got going. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is doing these awesome things to grab some attention. And I think that the, that the interesting thing is this, is that, okay, we obviously, God's trying to get the attention of the Israelites. They're his people. If we remember back to like in Genesis, we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's the, that's the line that we're going from where God said, hey, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And so that's where these Israelites have come out of. Uh, of course, God's trying to get his attention. He's already done that. But I think that the really interesting thing in this is that this isn't just for the, this isn't just for the Israelites. That in this, in this, in this conversation that God is saying here, he's speaking to Moses. And he says, but I have raised you up for this purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so this is a, this is a big old invitation. That this is something much bigger than I think that the Israelites even understand. Uh, they think that they're just getting freed by this God who their ancestors worship. They don't know a whole lot about these days. Uh, they're just stoked to be getting out. But God's up to something a lot bigger than just freeing these people from captivity. That this is a, this is something that he's sharing with the, the Israelites and with the Egyptians. Uh, and it's really interesting that, uh, um, some of Pharaoh's officials seem to, seem to heed what's going on. With the, with the plague of the, of the hail, uh, God gives a warning and says, hey, there's gonna be a lot of hail. Uh, you can right now go and tell your slaves uh, to get inside, to bring your animals inside, and they'll be protected. And some of these people, who, and it says that they feared the word of the Lord, they went immediately, put their slaves and their animals under cover so they weren't affected by the hailstorm. And so this message is something that's big. God wants to be known. He wants to be seen, not just by the Israelites, but by the whole world. He wants to establish this relationship with more than just the people of Israel. I think what's really cool about this is it's a big, it's a big foreshadowing of, of the Ten Commandments that we're coming up and seeing later, especially the first two uh, commandments. Remember what, what, you know, what the whole premise of this that Mike started us off with is that, that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And so um, God is establishing this relationship. He says, uh, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And those are the first two commandments. And so through these plagues, God is showing himself to be greater than the nation of Israel and all their gods and all their idols. That he's greater than the fertility of the Nile. The, the Nile is like, whoa, the giver of life, the banks flood, there's like silt that comes out onto all the land every year. Uh, it makes for some really great farmland. 
If you remember back, that's why the Israelites are in Egypt in the first place. There's a famine everywhere else. They all come to, to Egypt because it's the only place that they can find where there actually is food. And so Egypt can be very proud of itself because it's very self-sufficient. The fertility of the Nile is known throughout the ancient world. So you've got, uh, you've got God proving himself, I'm greater than that. I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. I'm going to kill off all the livestock that are living off of this. I'm going to send some locusts and some hail that's going to kill all these plants. That he's greater than Pharaoh's magicians, the, the other the religious system that they've got going there, that God is doing more than these magicians are able to. That God is greater than the sun. One of the major gods of, of Egypt was Ra, the sun god. Uh, cool name. Um, but anyway... God is greater than him. You've got this, the three days of darkness. This is one of the specific plagues that's really shutting down, hey, Egyptians, I'm getting your attention too. This thing that you count on hard, I'm greater than that. And he's greater than Pharaoh himself. Like I said, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god in his own right. And so uh, in this casting of the, of, the, of the plagues onto all of Egypt, including Pharaoh, including Pharaoh's son in that last plague, uh, God is proving himself to be greater than all that the Egyptians know and calling the Egyptians into relationship with him and saying, I'm trying to get your attention. I want, I want you to know me. I want you to see me. And so that's the purpose of these plagues, is that God is getting attention. God is, is drawing these people to him through his power. But the thing with it is, is that is that God desires soft hearts out of this. That, as we look at the story, we, we see multiple times all throughout there that, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And, and, the, and the interesting thing about it is that you've got, you've got three different uh, kind of, I guess, verb usage. I'm not an English major, so I can't tell you exactly what it is. Uh, but you've got a couple of different ways that it's said. You know, it, it talks about how uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So it kind of makes it sound like it did it itself. Uh, then you've got uh, then you've got instances where where it said that Pharaoh made his own heart hard, and then you've even got some situations where it says that that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's like, whoa, wait a second, that doesn't seem to to jive with this with this idea that God is um, really uh, wanting to know and be in a relationship with people. What what about Pharaoh? Why is he being excluded from this? And so I think that the the interesting thing with this is that. Um, is that the power of God is something that, that forces a reaction. And so as God is showing up in these plagues, as God is interacting through uh, Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh, uh, there's a choice that has to be made. And, and what's, what's going on here is that uh, as, as God is interacting, as God is forcing something to happen, Pharaoh's throwing up the wall that, of, of pride. He's got this big old wall of pride that keeps him from being able to be softened by what God's up to. That, that in Pharaoh, it, it, kind of all three verbs, that it, that's kind of all what's going on. That his heart just is hardened because of what Pharaoh is doing with his pride and because of what God is doing of coming at this and making something happen. And so it just forces it to happen. There's nothing that, that Pharaoh can do about it. It's just in God's sovereignty, something's going to happen. Something's going to give. And so in, the, in his, reaction, or his interaction with God, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened. And, it, and it's a result of who God is, that God is so 
powerful that something has to happen. And so Pharaoh and a lot of the Egyptians have this wall of pride that they've put up. That, hey, we are the bee's knees. We are what it's all about. They take a hardened heart to what God's up to. The Israelites respond differently. Remember, at the beginning of the story, the Israelites and the Egyptians were kind of on the same page. Neither of them had this great relationship with God. But out of this, the Israelites responded very differently. That they put aside the pride that they had, that they were upset with God, that they had gone from, from bad situation to worse, that they had to work more, that they didn't trust this God, they didn't know what was going on, um, but, they, but they put this pride aside. They let go of the victim's attitude that they could have taken into the situation. And they let God soften their heart. They let God come into relationship with them. And after all this is said and done, after they've gotten across the Red Sea, uh, they sing this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. you got two very different responses to God's power and presence with the Egyptians and with the Israelites. Theodoret was uh, an early church father from way back in like the like the 300s. Uh, what he says is that uh, the, you've got the power of the sun, and the sun, the same power, softens wax but hardens clay. And that's what we had going on here, is that the response to God's power, it demands a response. The Egyptians responded by, by, by hardening like clay. The Israelites responded by softening like wax. Kind of makes me think of the story of Les Miserables. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with that. Uh, it happens to be uh, one of my most favorite uh, stories of all time. Uh, I got to—I saw the movie when I was in high school. Um, there was a movie with with Liam Neeson uh, that came out in 1998. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and then, and then when I was in college, I got to go see the musical of Les Mis. Wow, that was really cool. If you haven't seen it yet, maybe you should do that sometime in your life. Uh, and then after I graduated from college, uh, I finally picked up the book and read it. Uh, I read the abridged version. Um, the unabridged is super fatty, and I guess he goes on like a hundred-page rant about the the Paris sewer system, uh, which I'm really not that interested in. Uh, so if you're going to read Les Mis, uh, which I would recommend, uh, grab the abridged version. Note to self. Uh, but anyway, I remember reading this book. I was uh, cruising around in the Mediterranean. Um, I was traveling around Turkey when I, right after I graduated from college, and was on a was on a what you call a goulette. Uh, it's a boat, like it was out in the middle of the Mediterranean. I was up late at night reading this book, finishing it off, and I just was like oh, streams of tears. Like I don't know that. I, let's be honest, I do cry a lot at books and stuff like that, but I don't know that one made me cry as much as this one. Like, it was just an incredibly powerful story. Uh, and so I totally remember that. It's like, I know exactly where I was when I finished Les Mis. Um, and so anyway, uh, this, this whole interaction uh, with the, the Egyptians and the Israelites, their response to God's power, to their response to who God is, who is a gracious God, and ultimately, uh, makes me think of, of the story of Les Mis. 
And so, if you're not familiar with it, uh, let me just give a brief overview of what this one is. Uh, you've got the main character, Jean Valjean. He is a former convict who, at the beginning of the story, is released. And in uh, this time in France, this is like early 1700, mid-1700s in France, um, the way it worked is he had to go to a certain city. Like, he couldn't live anywhere he wanted. As a, con- as a former convict, he could only live in certain towns. He's on his way to this town, decides, you know what, I don't want him to do this anymore. So he's at this bishop's house, this like, nobody will let him in because he's a convict, the inns won't keep him. Um, he goes to this, this, knocks on a door, this old man bishop, uh, leader of the church, knows who he is, lets him stay the night, serves him a nice meal. Uh, that night, Jean Valjean, uh, instead of being like, wow, how nice did this guy let me in, steals his silver, like the platters, the silverware, all this stuff, and leaves. He gets caught on his way outside of town. Uh, the police bring him back to this bishop, and the bishop says, oh, Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. And so he tells the police the story that uh, they were long-lost cousins and that he was actually giving him uh, this silver. And so uh, the police are like, they don't really believe it, but they have to, and so they leave. The bishop says, go, you've gotten a new life now. So Jean Valjean goes, he turns his life around, um, but he doesn't, he doesn't go to this, this town. Uh, and so then there's this inspector, Javert. He's the bad guy in this. He dedicates his whole life to finding Jean Valjean. And so he multiple times almost catches Jean Valjean, but doesn't quite. And oh, it's really frustrating for Javert. Lots of years go on. We're at the French Revolution. Um, We've got Javert still going after Jean Valjean um, through a series of circumstances, the love story in it. Um, we have Jean Valjean having to be a part of the French Revolution. Uh, he is with the revolutionaries. Javert is, comes and is a spy on the revolutionaries. He gets caught. Jean Valjean is the man that gets chosen to take Javert out and kill him. Okay, Jean Valjean takes him out, but instead of killing him, lets him go. Javert's like, what the heck are you doing? I have spent my entire life chasing after you. You're not supposed to do this. And Jean Valjean's like, hey, go. And Javert's like, okay, I'm going to keep chasing after you, though. He's like, okay. Soon enough, a little while later, Javert has the chance, uh, and he does capture Jean Valjean. Uh, and this is where we pick up the with the movie of uh, Javert's response after the fact to Jean Valjean's grace to him. So let's take a look at that. So I think that this is just, whoa, crazy. You've got this, this opportunity for Javert to, to kill Jean Valjean. But instead, he lets him go. And he says, pity that, it's a pity that um, the rules won't let me give you mercy. And so instead of just breaking these rules, Javert says, hey, you know, I've been living my life up to these rules. And instead he kills himself. That the, the grace that, that was shown, the, the power of God that, that Jean Valjean was able to show to Javert forced something to happen. And in that, because of the pride that he had of always trying to be perfect, of always trying to to follow all the rules, he wasn't able to accept that gift and it ultimately hardened his heart and led to his own death. 
Yeah, I think that that there is like just like Blair said in the in the call of worship that that there are, that sin, pride is which is one of the major sins is something that it's not just the bad things that we do; it's what keeps us from God. It's what blocks us from letting God soften our hearts. And with these soft hearts that we're able to be drawn into relationship with him. That God's desire is for us to to be able to be softened by the grace. Softened by uh, his desire to be at work in our lives. That it's not what we do, it's what God does. It's our invitation of him coming in and, and removing the sin, removing the pride, removing the things that block us from him and his love and his power. But that's God's desire, is for us to be in relationship with him with these soft hearts. He wants us to, to let go of the ways that we've been wronged in the past. Uh, to let go of the plans that we've made for ourselves that have gone awry, that we're still clinging to we're, because we're so prideful that we're not going to let go of this plan that I made. What are you holding on to that God... Uh, it's keeping God from being able to soften your heart. What do you need to let go of to, so- to let God soften your heart? Because that's what he ultimately desires. He desires to be in relationship with you and to soften that heart, to call you into the full life that he has. Lord, thank you for the fact that you do show yourself to us. Lord, uh, I thank you for the various ways that you show yourself uh, to us through uh, the Israelites, through these plagues. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the ways that you've shown yourself and made yourself known in our individual lives. Lord, I pray that, that you would be at work in softening our hearts, Lord. Lord, that you would show us those things that are blocking us. Lord, that you would take those away. Lord, we ask that you would come into our lives and that you would remove those things that are blocking. Lord, help us to share that with the people in our lives as well, Lord, who are in need of having their hearts softened. Lord, be at work in us. Let us see the ways that you're working and let let that draw us closer and closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.